On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase. And the question, censure over impeachment. Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, 9 to 11 for Dave and Dijanovic. Hey, Andy Phillips here, and I'm Tom Hackett. You may remember us from that time when we used to try really hard to make plays on fourth down. Well, we're back at it with a brand new show called Special Forces Gang, where we give you new perspective on what it takes to be a football player. We talk all things Utah football, sports, and life. Don't miss Special Forces Gang. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or on kslsports.com. Go Utes! Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. I'm Jess Larson. This is part two of our interview with uh, Tyson Heaton. The, the fascinating thing about OC Tanner, and when I so I, I showed up here five years ago, and I wanted to understand, you know, why why things work here, why they work well. And I think at Tanner's, it's so you know sometimes it's so part of your DNA, it's hard to understand why. Like, oh, that's just the way my family is, or that's just the way it is. And sometimes it takes from OC Tanner. If you missed part one. Um, go back, learn about uh, just what a dominant force these guys are in the recognition space and their SaaS software and uh, the way they're approaching recognition and culture changes. And um, so, Tyson, you know, not everybody realizes like, you know, an organization like you guys would be shipping, you know, 4,000 items a day and you've got your own refinery for, for your gold and your other metals that you're making and stuff like this. Um, but my question is thinking about the other folks that I know who are in manufacturing or distribution or like our clients who move a lot of stuff around. Right. When I talk to senior executives and people over there, um, I do not hear what I heard from you at the end of the last episode where you feel like, uh, you know, the advice you would give a younger version of yourself is being less concerned about being right and being more concerned about being connected. Can you, can you give us kind of the story arc, how you got from there to here? Well, yeah, I mean, I can try to, (laughs) I think um, you know my early my early career. I, I worked in I worked in like beef packing plants. So I spent a couple of years in you know on a kill and fabrication floor. That's what, that's what they call it the kill floor on the kill side of the business, where you're slaughtering seventeen hundred head a day. And you know I was in the in the early part of my management career. I understood. I've always been fascinated with human psychology and with how people work and, and what they think and when, when and where innovation and, and growth happens. So even in the beef, the beef industry, I found out that if I just talked to people, kind of understood them a little, and then told them, like, you're safe to experiment, you could get drastically better results. And I wasn't interested in connection at that time. I, that wasn't why I was doing it. It was just, it was something that I'd noticed, you know? And um it probably wasn't till I came to OC Tanner that it really uh, hit me full force. But um, and it's I guess I'm I'm I still consider myself a, a I guess everybody does a work in progress there. But um, I was I'd been attracted kind of the lean continuous improvement for its for the scientific part the scientific thinking the there's a clear answer it's measurable all these things and um, I when the when it hit me. Um, so I remember when I applied for OC Tanner, they they offered me less money than I was currently making, <laughs> and uh, it was after four or five interviews. And I sat down with uh, a friend who had, a friend of the my wife's family who had worked here and, and talked to him and asked him about working here. And I don't remember what why exactly, but I remember having the distinct impression that I don't know if working at OC Tanner will be the best thing for. 
um, my career professionally, like income and all these other things. But it felt like the thing that would help me be a better human, if that makes sense. And I didn't know why. I didn't know. There was nothing real specific. I felt when people come here, they know it feels a little different and they, they enjoy it. But I remember having that impression. And um, No, no. I, I've always thought about you as a terrible human. I, I totally think <laughs> you, you, you definitely need that. Like if anybody needs that, it's for sure you. I'm working. <laughs> and so it's, it's interesting, though, this quality of life thing because – you know, rational thinking and economists and kind of the 1950s approach that that humans make rational decisions for economic reasons would discount something like that so often, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the industrial area really, really prioritized like human capital below industrial capital. So it was, it, we seemed to be in a rough place there for a while. And I think we're largely working out of that. But um the, there was a series of it's probably as much in the personal life experience range as the work life. I grew up and, um, you know, my family were either cattle ranchers or small business owners. And like work and life is the same thing for that group of people. So there's no <laughs> there's no distinguishing. And so for me in business, I I love it. I like working. I like work. I'll work more if it's interesting and fun. And there's people who want to work alongside me. And sometimes I, I'd have a tendency to be quite rigid about, no, this is the right way we have we have to do it. And, you know, it, if you, you've talked to Gary and, and others here, um, Gary's one of the leaders that kind of have helped show me a different way in that it's not about being right. If you give people time, they'll, they'll shift around it. Um, but I think it was, you know, it's even in the past three or four years where it's hard to separate the work and the family, but even at home, you know, the, um, it, when you listen to some of these higher performing people and you think, wow, that we, I can see why that individual is high performing, but I wouldn't want to live with them. You know, if you mm -hmm. know what I mean? <laughs> sure. I don't know if you've ever listened to like Elon Musk or some of the others talk and you're like, yeah, I can see why they're exceptionally um, talented and skilled in creating that success. But what's it like being that person's spouse or child, right? And um, I was lucky I married up, I believe. And I think my wife and both the people here and, and Gary and team's dedication to helping shape me. In in the past in business, it would be the my previous business leaders before LC Tanner would say, you're doing great, just do more of it, you know? <laughs> And it kept being heaped on. And feedback took a different slant at OC Tanner. It was um, they. I'd be challenged to change my approach and you know the way I uh, suggested things or the way I challenged people in meetings. And it was as much a concern of how do you preserve others' dignity as well as as grow. Um, but I think you know all of it. All of it reached the point in my life where it was like either I continue being consumed with the right answer or I shift my life's approach because I was, I was accomplishing more, but I was getting no happier. If that makes sense, <laughs> like, mm. like more and more accomplishment, but I don't, you know, I'm not connecting with my kids or my family or even the people at work as much as I want. And, um, I guess like there was a series of events that happened in my life where I guess I had a few existential crises and kind of broke down and said, something's got to give. And it was in that break that this, this piece kind of manifested itself. And it, I've always had a, I have always interested in others growth and development and their independence and autonomy. That's like a huge value of mine is how do, how do I help others become more independent and independence 
and independent decision making and thinking's always been important to me. But um, you know, it was, it was in that moment that this value of connectedness rose to the top and changed the way I led. And it's been it's been healthy. And I think it's I think it's a component. I think the greatest the greatest leaders are ones who you know love and care and have a genuine interest in helping society or helping others. You know. Yeah. Well, I'm interested in what you feel like are some of the most influential books and, and other sources where people who want to generate more of this in themselves is, you know, you brought up leadership and self-deception. Obviously I'm a huge fan of those guys. They completely shaped my life and I moved down here to work yeah. for them. Right. Um, who else, who, who else is, uh, you know, what other books or who else is somebody that you could point to for folks who want to maybe tap into that a bit more? You know, I like, there's the classics that I really like. Um, the fifth discipline's good on learning organization. Is that Peter uh, Senge? Who is that? Yeah, yeah, his is his is fantastic. Um, as far as connected, you know, there's there's some new there's some new stuff in in that a lot of it's found its way in like relationship science. But um, what would I? Or just what are a couple of your favorite books? Yeah, um, I like uh, Cialdini's Influence and Persuasion. Those are fun uh, human psychology stuff. Yep. Um, Mindset is good by Dweck. I'm I'm always reading. I think I love Deming stuff. As far as classics, I think John Wooden was is is a fairly iconic leader, and all of his stuff is really great. If you study of any sports coaching and philosophy stuff, I think all of Wooden's material has uh, got a lot of depth, and he's fairly iconic leader. Yeah, you know what? Let's do this. Let's take a quick sponsor break, and then I want to talk about that because um, that specifically the Wooden stuff had a big impact on me. Okay. Hey, Andy Phillips here, and I'm Tom Hackett. You may remember us from that time when we used to try really hard to make plays on fourth down. Well, we're back at it with a brand new show called Special Forces Gang, where we give you new perspective on what it takes to be a football player. We talk all things Utah football, sports, and life. Don't miss Special Forces Gang. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or on kslsports.com. Go Utes! Okay, so before the sponsor break, we were talking about John Wooden. And, uh, you know, I was, uh, I don't know, 21 years old when my boss first handed me a John Wooden book. And uh, it was pretty impactful for me. And what's interesting for me is, you know, being a real audiobook nerd, you know, you kind of get, get some pretty consistent themes that show up all over the place in a number of the best books, right? But um, yeah. what I really like about the Wooden stuff is as much what's said about him as what he said himself. Like, you know, there's those, like, I'm sure you've met those individuals who, man, they're a great author or they have such a great keynote speech or, you know, they're, the outside version of them that the public gets to see is so, like, noteworthy and praiseworthy or something, you know, like, worth worth following. And then you get to know the people who work for them or you work for them or something like that. And you're like, oh, wow, somebody, <laughs> somebody needs to eat their own cooking, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, versus like when you hear about these basketball players like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and, and folks talk years and then decades later about their experience with him, like it's just so evident the guy actually ate his own cooking, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love um, – I think what's his quote that I really loved was success is peace of mind, which is a direct result of self-satisfaction and knowing you made the effort to become the best of which you are capable. Like. <laughs> just profound like he had so many good 
sayings, but he lived it. You know, he he was the servant leader. He was the coach. He had he cared as much for others as he did himself. It was a I think he's an incredible leader, and his his material is great. No kidding. You know, um, I'm thinking about his one of uh, if you don't have time if you don't have enough time to do it right the first time, when will you have time to make up for it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's probably slightly misquoted, but. It's interesting when you hear about how thorough he was and just like methodical about things. And, you know, there's there's these uh, I mean, the guy won like the most NCAA championships of any basketball team. Right. Uh, he's, he's didn't they win like eight in 10 years and then won another couple after that. Something like that when he was at yeah. UCLA. Right. And yeah, so he went seven in a row or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which I think the previous best had been four in a row. Anyways, um, it's interesting. The analysis about him when people went and studied his leadership style and his coaching style and they were expecting like from the movies with like the, you know, the verbose speeches in the locker room at halftime. Yeah. Right. And <laughs> instead they found was like consistent and repeated small tweaks, like yeah. hyper attention to detail over and over. And like, he wasn't a yeller. He was like just extremely specific about the details over and over and just like the ultimate inconsistency. But you know, highly, highly connected to those players as a human being. You know, it was not just about winning. It was like this very human experience, apparently, for people to play for him. Yeah. Anything to add? Any thoughts? Uh, I think I think he's I think he'll continue to be one of the great coaches of all time, and that you know, like his lessons, like in leadership, uh, his pyramid has a lot of depth. At first glance, it's it probably seems like, oh yeah, that's all great stuff but really practicing and putting it into your work and the way you do things or into the way you lead people is, is another challenge in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, on this subject of, you know, being an advisor, Toyota calls it being a sensei, you know, being a strategy advisor, whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I really feel like you guys and, uh, us synthetic, you know, the guys that make the artificial diamonds, right. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, you guys had such an effect on our entire company getting into the business of enterprise excellence, you know, continuous mm -hmm. improvement, lean stuff, because I had, I'd had such personal uh, experience with having an advisor that made a huge difference when I was running my private equity fund. Mm -hmm. And to hear about like how the U S synthetic folks like felt like they didn't really start generating a ton of uh, suggestions from their team for continuous improvement until after like a very consistent, you know, your manager will be your advisor meetings. One-on-one -on -one started happening. And yeah. then like the way that I would hear about what things happened over at your organization, that it wasn't like the boss showing up with a thou shalt do it this way. It was much more of this like organic experience of like connecting with them on a more human level, asking them about their problem and then asking them how they wanted to solve their own problem instead of yeah. jumping in with what to do about it. And right. that just sounds so slow. And it sounds like, well, how did you get to be the boss if you don't know the answer? And like, there's, <laughs> there's so many like counterintuitive things about it yet. Like what a great place to work. And no wonder uh, when people felt connected to management, they were more willing to engage in these continuous improvement activities that got you guys the absurd results that you've got in shrinking lead times and using less force space and getting things done cheaper and out to customers faster. Cause it wasn't the boss cracking the whip. It's like people executing their own plan for it. So that's my interpretation. I want to hear if you really see it that way, if you'd say it differently. No, I think the, the fascinating thing about OC Tanner and when I, so I, I showed up here five years ago and I wanted to understand, you know, why, why things work here, why they work well. And I think at Tanner's it's so 
you know, sometimes it's so part of your DNA, it's hard to understand why. Like, oh, that's just the way my family is, or that's just the way it is. And sometimes it takes like others saying, I think this is great for these reasons. So um, Tanner's has this process for recognition, and it's part of what we sell to our clients in that um, when people reach service markers and year awards, you know, like they, you reach five years, you're supposed to bring together people that have been close to them in their career and kind of talk about the great things they did. And you're able to you're able to narrate and connect people. You know, it's in reflection and reminiscing and talking about shared values that we build connections with each other that establish a culture and growth. You know, politics and um, religion has understood this for a while. Business is finally tuning into it a little bit. But um, the you know why why is the why do the absurd results exist and why I think um, for Tanners it is that component of connection with each other that we know people who work here know that their work matters that um, if I create an improvement that saves a bunch of money in the company I may not personally be rewarded for it but I have the belief and feel that that'll be given back to the community or help contribute to the further success of OC Tanner and being able to to spread recognition, appreciation, and, and great workplace cult cultures everywhere. This this piece that you that you hit on, where kind of the boss <laughs> telling and having the answers. Um, I, this is a dialogue that I've tried to a framework or a model that I've tried to adopt or share. And the idea is, if you listen to your language, it'll fall into categories. You'll have like a telling kind of dialogue that says, "This is the right answer. This is the way to do things." maybe some musts or shoulds, and it that's a component. And then you have a teaching dialogue that says, um, tell, tell, tell back to me what you understood about that and help me understand where you're at, right? And then you have a, a coaching and connection dialogue that says, what are you interested in? What, what steps might you take to get there? What do you think others would say about that? And how can you take that next step into action? Kind of a grow model coaching piece. And um, with our dialogue, we can unintentionally beat people into a position where they start coming to work thinking they just want compliance for me because I'm just being told all day, you know, or they just want they want me to learn and grow, but they're not allowing me to connect to their mission because they're not using a coaching dialogue. So dialogue is dialogue is critical. And I think that's a piece of, you know, what happens at Tanner's that's reflected through the leadership and really Gary has helped lead in that. Um, you know, being intentional about your dialogue, asking people what they think, um, asking about their values and their purpose and their even their families and knowing what their goals are and helping to align that with with the organization's goals or where there's mutual benefit. And sometimes there isn't. But if you help a person in completing their goals, they're more likely to come and engage in the organization's goals, too. And I think I think that's something that we've we've tried to be intentional about more and more. And that's helped, but really, uh, it kind of ties back to that reputation and the consistent pattern of, of behavior and health that's come from from the board and the family that, yeah. that owns yeah. the company. Uh, do you have any stories or examples of whether it was you know a leader genuinely connecting with you like that, or somebody that you feel like um, you know their performance at work went up when you were connecting to them on a deeper human level, or any specifics or examples that come to mind? I have. There's. So there's two 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 examples come to mind for me is um, 
I have a manager who's been, you know, she's, she's fantastic. She's great. She's, she's kind of a, uh, attack driver. She's really effective. And, um, she's always been interested in design and, uh, fashion, but she's kind of worked in manufacturing, you know? So, um, I, I encouraged her to like take time off to go to school, you know, like go to school, continue to pursue a design degree. And she's like, well, I'm kind of, is it really that valuable? It's like, no, pers- like pursue your dreams and your interests, like continue to develop in the things that really give you energy. And, you know, that this is something I've seen over and over is that when you, you know, as as she's taken these classes and maybe I lose an hour, um, a couple hours a week where she's got to leave and go to class and then come back. But everything I lost in that hour or two where she wasn't at work comes back in energy and passion because she's feeling more passionate about what she's doing. She's connecting with the things that give her the most energy and it it connects with others. And I've had, you know, a handful of cases where there's this question of, is it really going to be best for the company for them to pursue this piece of education? There'll be some sacrifice in time and it it turns around uh, tenfold. And um, that's that's been my experience. That when people are uh, when people can be encouraged to pursue something that they feel connected to, even if it's outside of work, that it comes back to the company. And there have been a few cases where people quit because they're like, "Yeah, you're right. I really do like this marketing stuff more." Um, that's a that's a kid we'd hired a, a few years ago. He he had a lot of fun while he was here. He helped manage some teams, but um, we kind of kept encouraging him to like pursue some of the marketing stuff he liked, and then. All of a sudden, he quit, <laughs> and um, I think he's happier doing what he is now. But um, so it's but it seems like what I'm hearing is as a percentage, that's a small byproduct, and the the net benefit, even if you're losing a few people, the gains you're making with everyone else more than make up for it. Is that an accurate inference? There? Yeah, that I I would add to it and say, um, even even the few places we've lost. Is it the energy of the person while they're doing something while they're passionate about is contagious. So, you know, workplace engagement and motivation and connection is as a lot of it's about managing the positive energy and ensuring that, you know, we have the we're doing the things that give energy rather than suck it out of us <laughs> or at least a balanced way. So I say even in the cases where they left the year or two that we had with them, um, their energy was positive and upbeat and contagious and contagious. Yeah. Whereas somebody who like accepts that, that you know, I call them zombies, like, and so, and this happens to all of us occasionally, you know, we, we probably go through seasons, but sometimes your job gets painful or some of the work you're doing gets painful and you come into work dreading it. And, it takes energy out of you and you go home and you have less to give to your family and that's contagious too. And so I think it's just as critical. I'm, the, the energy management in my mind is the more critical component of management than are we always doing exactly the right things or if this doesn't align with what we're trying to do, then get rid of it. You know, I, I think that logic's toxic and it disrupts um, growth. So, well, it's like a, I don't know, maybe this will be what we can wind up with is to me, what I feel like I'm hearing is this idea that 
essentially like this other's focus, this, uh, like this deep concern for those around us pays off over and over, even when you don't expect it, even when things change eventually in the meantime. And that's just kind of like the cons- the consistent theme I'm, I'm hearing throughout this. Would you say it different or how would you say it? No, I absolutely. I, I you know, the deep, deep, genuine concern for others and for, and I, I'd add maybe and, and the organization and where it's going help make difficult leadership decisions in the right way. So when I have a deep concern for an individual and I know they're just genuinely not a good fit and the things I'm asking them to do aren't aren't healthy for them, it's easier to say, you know, I, I care about you. I want you to be successful and happy. I'm not seeing how this work that we have is doing that. What's a better plan for you? And when they know, then when when they know that I'm genuine and that I really care for them, they open up and they say, "Yeah, I'm trying to do these other things and or I'd like to do something different." And you can start on a path of helping the person be healthy and leave, either leave in a good way, move to another position in the company that's helpful or you know, re-engage them in a way that their efforts are consecrated to a purpose and values rather than this transactional relationship we pushed them into. Yeah. You know, the only mentor I've really had that was younger than me uh, comes from the organization we were talking about earlier, the Arbinger Institute. And Mm -hmm. uh, Mitch Warner did that to me when he was a managing director and sat me down and like literally had that conversation with me and helped me leave the organization. And he was like, hey, we make good money off you. You sell a lot. But is this, you know, if I was your brother, I'd be telling you, shouldn't you be out there taking over the world? Right. And it was right. this real turning point. It was the right thing for them, right thing for our family. And uh, like, I'll be like eternally grateful to him for it. Right. Yeah. And that helps. I mean, that helps everyone, right? Like you leaving, even even the way that conversation happened, other people feel it and it absorbs it and it builds so much, so much trust. And it's on that basis of trust that that really, you know, humans can reach a different height. Well, it goes back to what you're saying, I think, in the first episode about the founder of OC Tanner of like the decision between extra dollars on the bottom line for the organization or doing, you know, like treating people right was like a non-issue. Like it was just like standard operating procedure. Yeah. And you think about like what that costs you short term, but makes up so much further in the long term because that reputation gets around. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I love it. Well, listen, uh, Tyson loves talking about this stuff. When I see him at Shingo conferences or stuff like that, I'm always talking to him about stuff like this. Feel free to reach out and connect with him on LinkedIn. And, uh, and of course, check out OC Tanner and, and their programs and culture work and, and uh, recognition. And uh, Tyson, this is great. Thanks for doing this. Hey, thanks for having me on, Jess. It was good to chat with you and talk about things further. Bye. We'll see you. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about, if you remember the guys from Convoy, uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and Trent Mano, I went on one of their CEO trips to New York, and I met a guy named Brent Thompson, very successful entrepreneur. He was former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or four hundred million dollars. Anyways, he uh, he started a new company called BlipBillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I, I remember a year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard. Um, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on, what time of day you want it to run. And it just puts so much power in the hands of of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors. We're pretty excited about it. 
Hope you check out blipbillboards.com. Thanks.